For too long, history lessons have glossed over the truly essential contributions women have made to history. That's where Encyclopedia Womanica comes in. This podcast from Wonder Media Network aims to change the narrative by introducing the pioneers, scientists, chefs, and more from antiquity to today who have shaped our society. Every weekday, host Jenny Kaplan dives into the trials, tragedies, and triumphs of this diverse group of groundbreaking women. And the best part is, each episode is only five minutes long. The bite-sized episodes pack painstakingly researched content into fun, entertaining, and addictive daily adventures. You may or may not already know these women, but you definitely should. Subscribe to Encyclopedia Womanica wherever you get your podcasts. So, Allison, I don't know if you know this, but Mariah Carey is going to be releasing a memoir. What? It's really exciting. And and can you guess what the title of the memoir is? All I Want for Christmas is this book. (laughs) That should be the title of the memoir. It's interestingly called, quote, The Meaning of Mariah Carey, which much like The Meaning of Christmas is impossible to say. So true. And, you know, I just I can't wait to get into the meaning of this book. And frankly, all I want for Christmas is Samantha's surprise. So true. Welcome, everyone, to American Girls. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm still Allison. Allison, how are you? What's going on? We are recording on a physically cool day, and I think it's about to heat up as we talk about Samantha. You know, things are going along. Things are happening in this book. Things are, first of all, we have an author change, I believe. We'll have to get into that. So much going on. In fact, so much going on that we're not going to super talk about a lot of the other things we're taking in in large part because probably the biggest pop culture thing rocking our worlds, lighting up our lives this week is the Babysitter Club reboot, which we are going to get into in great detail in our Patreon episode. So we're going to kind of leave that conversation for that episode. And you basically came at me today and were like, I have a, a lot to say. So I feel like we should probably get into it. We shall. And I'll also say, you know, Samantha's have kept me so busy. I have more notes for this episode than I have had in a long time. Oh, my God. I can't wait. I've just been my like version of research for this is I've taken on a 500 page Alice Roosevelt biography that I do not remember ever buying. But there is a border sticker on it. R.I.P. Borders. And that's also lighting up my life. So I will be, you know, as necessary or maybe like not even asked for unprompted. I will be offering some Alice Roosevelt information as needed. Well, you're standing on the shoulders of giants there because the 18 authors of this book basically ripped half their <laughs> plot lines from the Roosevelt. So It's so dark. It's so true. It's 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 like what is going on in this franchise that the authors have dropped out after book two And instead, someone came in and was like, listen, I've read one Roosevelt biography. That's all I really need. And I'll take it from here. I think we'll get to the bottom of it. I have some evidence. Um, A word I used earlier today when talking about this was nefarious. So we'll see. But I'm ready. Should we just do it? Yeah, let's get into it. This episode is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships. 
What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. So I have a sort of pretty short publisher's description for this particular volume, um, and I chose a slightly longer one. Samantha Parkington is a bright Victorian beauty being raised by her wealthy grandmother in 1904. Samantha's stories describe her life during this important period of change. Her own world is filled with frills and finery, parties and play, but Samantha sees that the times are not good for everybody. Same. That's why she tries to make a difference in the life of her friend Nellie, a servant girl whose world is nothing like Samantha's. Samantha hopes for the best Christmas ever, but things start to go wrong when Uncle Guard brings a special friend home for the holidays. Now, I want to contrast this very briefly with a second publisher's description that I found. Samantha has high hopes for the best Christmas ever until she finds out that her favorite uncle guard is going to bring home the beautiful Cornelia for the holidays. The household goes into a dither and Samantha blames Cornelia for ruining the holidays. Notice that difference between beautiful Cornelia and special friend. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on there. There's a lot. I mean, this is really our first eyes on Cornelia. You know, for books one and two, I genuinely thought she was a figment of Guard's imagination or like a convenient, like almost he somehow got his hands on a Gibson girl advertisement and he was like, that's her. That's my special lady friend. She doesn't exist, but she does exist when, you know, when I need to pull her out of the glove compartment, when people think I'm getting a little too attached to my car, here's Cornelia. And, you know, come to find out she's an actual person. I still have many questions. I want to say this about her. She is too good for this family, period. She's too good for this family. And where this book goes is we see Samantha, as these different descriptions describe, like living this life of beauty, this life of intense wealth. And this whole book has her kind of scheming about how she's going to get to go to her friend Ida's party on the 23rd. And then we find out that Guard and Cornelia are coming to the family estate at the same time. And she has to rescind that invitation, which is like crisis. She also has a doll she wants that she might not get. We come to love Cornelia because she's good at sledding, question mark. She's good at sledding. Basically, let me back up for a second. Neither one of those descriptions offered by the publisher, whoever that came (laughs) from, were accurate at all. And I, I in fact, take great offense to description one, which has the nerve to invoke Nellie, who does not appear in this book at all, period. The central conflict of this book is that Samantha basically rolls up on her friend who invites her over to for the Christmas party. They get into a conversation about what they want for Christmas. The friend wants a dog, whatever. 
Samantha lets us know she wants yet another porcelain doll because she's obviously already given her doll away to Nellie, which was beautiful. The central conflict of this book is, will she have the courage to tell Grand Mary that she wants a porcelain doll that's expensive holding a nutcracker? And then come to find out, like, the subplot to me is, like, you know, she has all these rituals and traditions, which mainly um, require household staff to not seem bothered or annoyed by her encouraging or requiring them to put up with her you know, like desire to make a gingerbread house or, you know, cover the house in her homemade decorations. That's all adorable, whatever. She has to put up with the staff basically putting all that to the left to impress Cornelia at Grand Mary's um, request. And then Cornelia is the air quotes hero of the book because she sees through all of this and is like, no, Samantha, you matter. And she psychically understands that Samantha wants that doll and buys it for her. At which point on Christmas morning, Samantha goes from giving Uncle Guard a gift that she had, I will say, (laughs) overhyped. Yes. And she was like majorly building up this gift of a box that she covered in cut out illustrations, which like sounds cute. She goes from hyping this to Uncle Guard and she's like, you can't believe the gift I'm giving you. Like, I've never put so much time into a gift in my young life. And at the last minute, the minute Cornelia gives her what she wants, she's like, forget you, Uncle Guard. Here you go, Cornelia. End of book. I I know this will be sort of like a bombshell maybe in our friendship. You're drinking, so I'll wait a second. You and Samantha are like the same exact kind of gift giver. Excuse me? <laughs> Like, as I was reading this book, I was like, wow, it's really going to resonate with Mary because she makes a lot of the gifts. She puts so much time and effort into thinking about the gifts. And she does a ton of DIY. Like, she makes a book by hand. She is very thoughtful about bath salts and fragrance, which you are also. No, you are. And, like, even the way that she's very... I know. And I kind of knew this would happen. So I didn't tell you ahead of time. I was like, wow, you're actually like really similar gift givers. And like you put a lot of thought, but also like you will pull back if you feel like the gift is not going to like match the level of like loyalty infection of the receiver. No, am I- who have I done that to? I just like, oh my you God. are a person. No, like I think I was feeling a lot of similarities. To me, this is a childhood memoir of a person who expresses love through gifts, which is very much something that you do also. And you're very thoughtful about DIY gifts and like a struggle of like making sense of what is the best to give when. <sighs> Allison, I feel like I need to call in like a personal defense attorney, a therapist. Um, maybe I need to do some dream journaling, hit pause on this recording. I don't really know what I need to do. But wow. I'm sitting with all this. I'm letting it wash over me. (laughs) This has been a rough week. We'll get into this on the Babysitter Club episode, but I have always identified as a Christie, and I am, but having to like revisit that content and still know that it's true is devastating. Also, Anna was like, but maybe you're a Dawn. And Anna had previously said she hates Dawn. So I'm like, I don't know what this means for our marriage anyway. I'm dealing with a lot. That's what I want to say to you. Do I keep a Pinterest board on my phone for gifts I want to buy people or make for people? Yes. I do love making gifts for people. That's true. Um, I love making books from scratch and I do a lot of bookmaking projects for people. And now I'm kind of wondering, like reading this book, like maybe people don't want that in the same way that I'm like, 
Do people want Samantha's gifts? I'm kind of wondering like if Samantha's, I'm watching Samantha make these gifts for people and she's not, I guess as someone who also makes gifts, it's like I really try to think about the person's interests and what they would like. And I try to make something for them that's like not something for me. But there's also kind of an ego trip in watching Samantha do this where it's like, yeah, I made this for you. And I'm like, oh my God, is that me? Do I do that? Like, this book is very different, I think, from some of the others where, like, she puts so much thought into gift giving. And I think what was an interesting angle was obviously she has money, right? Like, obviously she has figured out ways in the past to get access to money to buy things for herself and others. But she chooses to invest in gifts that she is still making, which I think is very you. And, like, this whole book to me, I was like, wow, this is so Mary. Like, all the time and effort that she puts. No, I think it's a compliment that she puts into making something for someone else. Like my mother is also very much like this. She has been making Christmas presents since January 5th. I don't have that impulse. I don't have that patience. Like it's not there for me. And even when she is making the gingerbread houses, I was like, that's so merry because last year at Friendsgiving, we made gingerbread houses at your house. Like these are not impulses. I know that I this, have. this book did resonate because I was like, wow, this is kind of my, I am that person who will take on learning all crafts and making them for people as gifts. And then I'm sort of like, it's kind of like, do you hate yourself when you see it on the page? And do I really want to sit with the question if I'm Samantha? I don't know. Just as a sidebar, Mama Donna, which is what I call Allison's mom. And I have been in communication about your birthday oh. gifts and your Christmas gifts. I've seen what she's making. I'm into it. I've given some feedback. But yeah, we are both like makers. I enjoy just making things. I, I don't just make things. I do buy things for people sometimes. I, I love, it's like an Olympic sport for me to sit back and say like, okay, your birthday is September 21st. What am I going to get you that you would really want that you wouldn't think of to get yourself? Like, I love that more than buying myself gifts. So for me, it's like, that's such an interest. And I will make things for you. I have something in mind to make for you. But it's like, then it's a challenge of like, I've never made that before. Can I figure it out? See, I am very much the opposite where I buy things for people that they have explicitly articulated that they want and that they mentioned in passing. And then I make a mental note and I make sure I get them that thing. Like the thought of making something for someone else is like incredibly daunting to me. I think in a way I really liked that aspect of this because it makes Samantha more accessible, even though she's a rich girl. Because it, it adds a layer of thoughtfulness to a thing like many children make gifts when they are children and they are like aesthetically subpar, but it's the thought that matters. Yes. And I think what's kind of cool about her is like she's navigating shopping spaces and she's doing DIY projects. And I read some of the supplementals that are Samantha's that take place in winter. Like she's an extremely thoughtful friend. Like there yes. is a a like B-level book that I read um, where Samantha, Nellie, Ida, and others are out ice skating and Nellie is upset because she doesn't have ice skates and they end up kind of doing an O. Henry thing where Samantha makes sure that they all chip in and get Nellie ice skates and then Nellie and her dad make this like beautiful winter scene for Samantha and the other friends at the rink. So it's like this beautiful moment where they kind of like 
well, it's not O. Henry, but they like make things nice for each other. So they have like a same kind of gift giving language. That's really cute. Like I, I, I'll have to figure that out. I mean, I think because her friendship love language is gift giving or like making gifts, which I agree based on her background makes it all the more meaningful that she's choosing to, you know, use her time and talents and whatever to put things together. They mentioned in passing that her Christmas gift she's made for Nellie is a black cape, which I don't really buy that she made that by herself. Like, I think Jesse probably did a lot of that labor, but regardless, we never get to see that moment of her giving Mm -hmm. that to Nellie. And I kind of wonder why that's not in this book, because I do think that some of the most positive attributes she has, as you say, are being a friend. So to go from like two books that have very strong friendship energies to something that's essentially like really positioning her as a child in this family, trying to navigate where she fits in in a household where that has a hierarchy of servants and a hierarchy of family members, both of which seem to find her in like a subordinate position. Um you know, I, I wonder what went on with that. And is that because this is a different author, correct? I'm not losing my mind. Yes, I was just going to segue to that because you are not alone in feeling like this volume read differently to you, not just in terms of content, but the writing and the editing. So according to what I could find out online, when these early series were first conceptualized, Valerie Tripp was in from the ground level because of her friendship with Pleasant Rowland, and Molly was promised to her, and she also... Apparently, Val had, like, a writer, and she said, someone will have glasses. Oh, And my then God. she made it Molly because she thought it went well with the braids. Um, True. Janet Shaw got the entirety of the Kirsten series, and then Samantha... This must have been a financial, logistical decision. They said Valerie Tripp will get half of Samantha and a team will get the other half, which is incredibly bizarre. That's wild. So we had Susan Adler for the first two. And then this book is written by Maxine Rose Schur. And this is like kind of outside of her wheelhouse, which isn't to say it's not a good book, which isn't to say I didn't love it. This book read differently to me, and this is not exactly her thing. Like, I get how it happened. She's a pretty famous travel writer who's written many books for Random House and others. Um, That's, like, her focus. She's also a public speaker who went to Berkeley and Stanford. Like, she's this incredibly... Right, she's this incredibly impressive person, and then we kind of have this one... I mean, that kind of makes sense based on what you're saying, because I did notice that among many of the tonal shifts of this book is that the first two books and a lot of the books in the series overall do that thing that I kind of like, which is they hit you over the head with historical references. And this book, basically, Maxine was like, I will not be waiting into any of that. Thank you. Like, if anything, this is just not to say that this story could have taken place anytime, anywhere. But I think it kind of reads to me like um, a very special episode of Little House on the Prairie or like a family show that's doing a Christmas episode where it's kind of something that could take place whenever. Like certainly the inclusion of a porcelain doll speaks to a different time in terms of trade and what's available. But 
Um, So much of this is not really calling out or trying to insert Samantha into a larger historical moment or debate. No, and something that has really, really stood out to me, and I don't know that I would have noticed it, except that we were so drawn in and so enamored with the illustrations in Kirsten. This kind of rotating, endless, like, in and out of illustrators for Addie and now for Samantha, it makes such a difference to me. Like, Mm -hmm. the early Addies, I think, have such amazing and compelling illustrations. And then the switching in and out of lots of different people for the main character, that happens here and it happens with Addie. I feel like Samantha is literally not recognizable at times book to book, just as we experience with Addie. Yes. And it's not like one is necessarily, like, that much more superior, but you notice it. Like, there's completely different people I tracked across all the different Samantha stories. There's additional people, additional illustrators that get brought in. Susan Adler gets recalled at some point to do additional stories. What? And I'm like, why do we have an army writing this? I just want to read you Maxine's bio because it speaks to what you were just saying. Okay. Um, As a girl, Maxine enjoyed playing with dolls just as much as Samantha. We get it. You want us to buy a doll. (laughs) Sometimes she would try her doll clothes on her pet Chihuahua, Poochie. She'd dress her tiny dog in an infant's gown and bonnet and push him to the store in an old baby carriage. See, she especially loved the looks on the faces of people who wanted to have a peek at the little baby. Ms. Shore lives in California, where she continues to write picture books and historical novels for young people. So, I feel like Maxine met Plez on a retreat somewhere like mm-hmm. they were in Taos mm-hmm. in a sweat lodge and she was yep. like Max I need someone to do a one-off what's your favorite season she was like Plez you know I love Christmas you know I do like you know it's my favorite holiday. well maybe she has a great Christmas party that Plez goes to she was like you know about Pooch like you know what I did with Poochie um Sidebar, someone sent us photos this week that had me absolutely doubled over laughing of photos of them with like a baby doll in a carriage and that was 100% me. I was so annoying as a child <laughs> um, bringing dolls and baby carriages to stores. Oh boy. Um, but I feel like Maxine and Plez, they have a history. It's not going to come out until, you know, posthumously. That's fine. But you're absolutely right that there's like such a tonal shift and there's a lot less of historical moments. And there's actually a few things that viewers, um, sorry, listeners flag to us as being not really accurate in this book. Would love to hear more. So the doll struck me like something in my spidey sense went up, but I couldn't put a finger on it. Okay. And then someone wrote to us and was like, first of all, number one, you need to know that the Nutcracker is totally anachronistic for this book. Okay. I'm not, I don't know the history of that. So I appreciate hearing this. So we'd heard previously from a ballet historian, we're circling back to you. Don't think we forgot about you. Trust me, we haven't. Listener Katie wrote to us and said that after rereading the surprise, the adorable nutcracker, like it, an alarm went off. Okay. That wouldn't have happened, she says. I read Apollo's Angels by Jennifer Hammonds a few years ago, a dense but great history of ballet. The Nutcracker didn't become a hit and holiday tradition until mid-20th century. So this is, as always, it's about Pleasant. 
1892 premiere was a flop and it wasn't performed outside of Russia at all until the 1930s. Molly might know ballet, but Samantha wouldn't. Oh, my God. Do you think this is sort of like Maxine was like, hey, listen, would love to pick up just a check just for some walking around money when I hit my beach house in West Palm, my winter home in West Palm. We share a dog walker. She's connected me with you. Um, I would love to just use my own personal childhood history, the struggles I've been through of not getting the porcelain doll I wanted as a child. And I'll, I'll put that anytime in history. No big deal. And Plus was like, yeah, no, no problem. What I think is odd, actually, come to think of it, is Samantha covets dolls so much. She wants them. She has to have them. She kind of doesn't really play with them. Yeah. Like, I felt it was so palpable and real, like the relationship that Addie had with her doll, the way that Josefina's traumatic relationship with the doll plays out. Felicity, Kirsten, they all got these dolls and it was like so important to them. Mm-hmm. In this book, it's like she wants it because she wants it. Yeah, I think the entire theme of her book or this plot line was conspicuous consumption. So in yes. a way, in a way like that is the appropriate flex to just say like, I want this doll essentially to like have in my room so I can point to it and say like, yep, I own that doll and that's about it. Like I'm never going to use it again. I'm just saying. And- And what did you think about the scene where she is too afraid to articulate that wish to Grand Mary? Like, how did you feel about that scene? I mean, it's hard now because you've compared me to Samantha in this book. So I can't fully tell you what a strong reaction I had against (laughs) this plot line because it feels like an exercise in self-loathing. But it's just... I didn't buy it. I didn't buy that she would be afraid to ask Grand Mary for this doll because in book one, she does it with ease. She asked Grand Mary for literally everything. Like, can I go to the party? Can I start a school in the room in the tower of our house? Can we, you know, do this, that, whatever? So this is not a shrinking violet person. If you told me Josefina, if Josefina did this, I would be like, of course, that's textbook Josefina. Absolutely. What about you? So I found something really interesting, which was I read an article on the billfolds about like children's literature teaching you about money. And they were talking about the $6 doll from the Lydia books, but they were using some data saying that that would be worth $155, which is the exact amount that like a Samantha kit cost when Mm. a lot of this came out with like additional accoutrement and the be forever era and i was like that is chilling um i think her relationship with grand mary is so cold and distant and i think it changes the way you read her relationships with the servants like she is so reliant on them to make her holiday magic happen because unlike felicity who like sends her mother basically into like a coma over trying to make magic happen for the family grand mary is really checked out like whatever has gone on with her like whatever love of her life died in the war of 1898 <laughs> she's like not invested at all in no seriously she's not like she kind of like smirks at samantha she's present not really i did real that i read that grand mary had some civil war trauma which we'll be dealing with later but i don't want to ruin it i seriously was reading this book and i was like she is clinging on to every staff person because she is not only an orphan, her grandmother really is is not there. 
Yeah. And I was really, I mean, in the same way that in some ways I was sort of annoyed initially by a nine or 10 year old kind of only thinking about what they want to do and how other people around them can help them do the thing they want to do, which is very age appropriate. Ultimately, it's really sad to see her go on this tour around the house to kind of say like, will you help me make a gingerbread house? Will you help me decorate? Will you help me do this, that, whatever? When in fact, you know, then the chilling moment when a man from a florist is putting a garland on the stairwell and she sort of is like, oh, but I told Grammary I made decorations for the whole house. And it's so clear that Grammary either wasn't listening to her or heard mm-hmm. her and was like, that's trash. I'm getting professional decorators in here, which is such a complete misread of the value of hand homemade decorations. But it's also probably very in keeping with a person who is obsessed with appearances, as Grandmary clearly is, and all of these, like, um, you know, forms of social etiquette. But it was really sad because it's like, wow, nobody really cares about, nobody wants to put time in with Samantha because everything that matters about, like, making a gift for someone or making decorations or all of these holiday rituals people have it's not just doing those things in isolation it's doing them with someone else that you love like making holiday cookies whatever it is and i think she's so desperate for that connection so she's envisioning all these things that she can make that someone will have to help her with and then come to find out like grand mary outsources the entire thing and everyone has to shut down hanging out with her to make cornelia happy so it's like actually displaced anger from cornelia Mm-hmm. to Grand Mary, but she can't bring herself to question Grand Mary because she's too vital to her survival. Which brings me to another point. I was really surprised in this book, and I don't know if this is appropriate or not, that we didn't get any kind of momentary imagining as a child has an imagination about like, I miss my parents. Like, I wonder mm-hmm. what I would be doing if my parents were here. Like, my mom would make a gingerbread house with me. And maybe that's too dark, but... I think especially if you're lonely or, you know, holidays, you do think about loved ones not no longer with us. And we have yet to have even a moment other than her asking Jesse awkwardly if she knew her parents. Like, that's it. I think that's the difference between Valerie Tripp being at the steering wheel, so to speak, because yeah. we got hit with that hard with Josefina. Like, the central, Too hard. the central element of her christmas and like christmas adjacent story was like the the missing of the mother um what struck me as you were talking about that was like the central thread of all the samantha books so far being like value and values Mm -hmm. right because samantha is really not interested in learning from rich people just because they're rich like she's interested in connecting with people who have the same values and she's consistently coming up against like both respecting her grandmother as this member of the old guard and not always agreeing with her. Like when she differentiates Nellie as someone she's quote helping from a friend, the decorations, it really does kind of hit at like what grand Mary values, which is that the house present a certain way to Cornelia. But Cornelia is actually just enamored with Samantha as a loving member of the family And I think Uncle Guard kind of gets Samantha the most when he gives her the Christmas Carol book and says, you know, now you can like return to these things that you love year round. Also because like he's MIA most of the time, (laughs) like everyone in her life. Yeah. Um, Would love to drop down on what Uncle Guard's profession is. (laughs) I don't think he has one. You think Um, he's just driving around? 
Well, I do. And I think what you're saying about like the way that Samantha's sort of like childish decorations because she's a child are like dismissed by people for various reasons. Honestly, like having worked in mansions, I feel like this hits so hard on a reality of like the way that Nellie can't be a child because she's asked to work. In certain ways, Samantha can't really be a child because, like, things that she does that are considered childish are out of place for Grand Mary and her orbit. And I think about stories I would hear of, like, young people growing up very repressed in these, like, very elite circles or, you know, documentaries and other things we've talked about. They're expected really to act like little adults. Mm. And there, there really isn't a space made for them to be absurd and sometimes that's where like acting out comes at boarding school or like acting out comes in these other contexts or like i was thinking a lot about the kind of the books that might have come out around the same time that samantha was growing up and thinking about books like the secret garden and the little princess and just kind of a genre that i'll call orphan chic which is basically orphans who are rich who are alone all the time and their central like driving force is loneliness which um kind of inspires them to transgress in the form of you know becoming friends with neighbors maybe not of the same class or acting out or like going on some escapade that seems more adult like um either to save someone or whatever i mean even coming down through to like punky brewster my fashion icon um i guess still but definitely when i was younger And, you know, thinking about those moments, like thinking about the little princess, she was someone who also had conspicuous consumption. Like she, her room was filled with toys, but she was alone. You know, Mm -hmm. her father was away, her mother was dead. And this is very much like that. I mean, in that book, at least she had had a relationship with her parents. So she obviously was mourning them. But in this book, you know, we don't even get, she doesn't even get like the gift of a memory or of, of someone to mourn. She just has this total loneliness so in a way it's like yeah value and values that really resonates with me and you know what does it mean what work is it doing to make samantha an orphan yes you are you didn't read this email but listener linda sent us an email with like almost verbatim what you're saying that she thinks a lot of samantha is based on the works of francis hodgson burnett and specifically sarah crew and a little princess mary lennox in the secret garden And she points out that Sarah Crew actually has an expensive doll very much like this plot point. And she befriends a servant girl. Um, Mary Lennox is sent to live with a reclusive uncle. Like all these things are very tight and similar. I think one of the reasons why it's convenient to make her an orphan is it exaggerates generation gap. Because Mm. now there's a grandmother and a granddaughter versus a parent and a child. And I think... There's too much of a chance that Samantha's parents could be, like, cool. (laughs) And that doesn't really create as much tension, right? Yeah. I think there's this image um, of, like, stuffy old woman living in the Victorian era and then someone like a Samantha evolving into a quote-unquote new woman. And that's why it's convenient for her to have a cool aunt and uncle, but not parents. I also think, too, thinking about Frances Hodgson Burnett, who a lot of people don't realize was a Christian scientist and used the secret garden especially to recruit people or to embody those values. Now, if you don't know much about Christian science, all you need to know 
is it was a religion invented by a person named Mary Baker Eddy who came to reside in Boston where the church is still based. And she wrote a textbook, which is still the textbook of that church called Science and Health. And it says, among other things, let this book be your physician. And essentially the religion is is kind of like the power of positive thinking, which came later and was influenced by that. So you can speak yourself into healing. Like you can think yourself well and God will heal you. And in their religion, they believe that this kind of healing can heal both physical and mental ailments. There's no limit. So in the scene in the secret garden where the boy in the wheelchair gets up and walks, like that's her embodiment of Christian science, that that is medically possible. And I'm kind of wondering in Samantha's world if... We're seeing so much wealth, but no labor to produce the wealth. It's Mm. kind of creating this vibe to me that's sort of like you're not seeing like an economic engine in this family of how that's causing things to happen. So it kind of creates a space for Samantha to just sort of speak things into existence or plot an idea and sort of make it happen on her own. What if I told you that I knew Samantha's favorite book? I would love to hear it. So according to the ultimate visual guide, like when I say I did my homework for this episode, you I really was like, did. the time is now. Her favorite nighttime activities are relaxing, Great. playing with her teddy bear. Excellent. Like they hit us over the head with that. We get that the teddy bear is of this period after Teddy Roosevelt. Playing with her music box and reading The Wizard of Oz. What? You want to talk Christian science. Hi. <laughs> oh, my God. That is so true. Oh, my God. Wow. I'm just staring off into space thinking about that. That's wild. I also think there's a not insignificant amount of this book, which is sort of like perhaps Pleasant Rollins, like rewriting her own family's history, like her own way that she wishes it was. So Valerie Tripp, obviously good friend of Pleasant, grew up in Mount Kisco. And she would walk by the house that's depicted in this book every day on her way to school. So from that, we learned that like this is like part of her like like remixing a childhood element and that she walked to school. Um, We also learn from listener Cordelia. Thank you. That Pleasant actually bought this house. What? This raises questions for me as to whether like Pleasant and Val are the (gasps) models for Samantha and Nellie. She buys this house. Then she tries to turn it into a doll museum and it does not work out. This is from what a listener told us. This whole thing to me is like soul bananas. Like the closest we have to this is like I'll see a Kit Kennedy bio in the bargain bin at Barnes and Noble and buy it for you. Yes. Imagine you saying like I always walked by this ex as a child and I wanted it. And like we grow up to be famous authors and I buy it like for you slash us slash our dolls. I like, mean, I would happened. love for that to happen to us and for us, but that is so insane to me. Like, that is just absolutely – it's kind of like when you hear a celebrity who's like, yeah, when I was growing up, like, I just really love Starbucks. So then when I finally made it, I built a Starbucks in my house. It's like, okay, why? Like, that's just – I feel like – so a different Mind Cure book, which is very similar to Christian Science, is that a lot of people don't realize is part of it, is The Little Engine That Could. And obviously the saying, I think I can, I think I can, is basically like the entire idea behind Mind Cure, which is that you can think yourself rich, well, thin, whatever you want. And I feel like the Pleasant Rollin family crest literally just says, I think I can. Like, I think I can take over a town. I'm going to do it. Like, I think I'm going to buy my – BFF, a childhood dream house. Here it is. Here's the keys. 
Okay, what if I told you I think I have a way that we can, like, we can actually do this for ourselves, too. And it's based on a scan of a game that a fellow American Girl fan sent us. Oh, my God. Let's do it. I didn't know if I'd have, like, a way to bring this up today. So, as you know, like, we're blessed to have our inbox filled with, like, so many different kinds of things. And sometimes people send us stuff and it takes me a minute to get to because I will read it and I will be so stunned I have to actually process it. So, did you remember the American Girls Savings Game? Did not remember that at all. Okay, so first of all, I want to say this. We learned that Uncle Guard's favorite candy in this book is what, Mary? Um, Hold on, I have to re- revert to my book. That's are you okay. talking about the chocolates he gets, or what are you talking about? He loves chocolates, oh, but his jelly favorite... beans. Ugh. His who Whose favorite candy is jelly beans? Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan, okay. So... <laughs> so upsetting, yes. So this game is like... Nancy Rag was sitting around and she was like, War on drugs is not, not going, going great. as not not going well. So <laughs> costing a lot of money, incarcerating people at unbelievable rates. Sure. Cuts of the American Girls Savings game. With the you. object <laughs> the object of this game is to complete a jigsaw puzzle of the American girls by earning twenty puzzle piece stickers. You earn stickers by saving money. When you save the money and earn all the stickers, you will have finished the puzzle and best of all, have enough money saved to buy the item you want from the American Girls collection. Sounds complicated, but okay. Step one is to get a savings coach. So we'll be that for each other. I'll be your Susie Orman. I don't have my clip on earrings, but let's just pretend. Our next part is to set a goal. What item do you want? Is it a doll, a book, craft kit, a dress? And you write the costs. Okay. Then we determine saving stuff. Like, what world do they think children are operating in? I have no idea. Like, kids who have only been exposed to rich dad, poor dad. (laughs) Or, like, watched Greed is Good, like, 50 times. Like, the final step, like, basically all you need to know is the final step is to order your treasure. When you have all your money saved, give it to a parent, garden, guardian, or savings coach and have them place the order using a check or credit card. Good luck and have fun completing your game. Like, there's something about this that struck such a, like, funny and bizarre chord (laughs) with me because it also teaches you how to calculate tax and saving. What? uh, Shipping. (laughs) So it has you, like, add up. Like, if you want a Felicity when this came out, she's $82. Her postage and handling is $9.45. So you need $91.45. Like, I think if this game is reaching you, I don't know that this is really even still the way. Like, there's something about this whole, like, ethic of consumption that goes along with American Girl that we've known, but that is so obvious with this Christmas story like one of the the things that has resonated for me the most across any book is Kirsten's friends truly gathering scrap and making her a quilt and how meaningful that was and in Samantha it's like NFG buy stuff for people or make it using using expensive materials and I found myself fold into it where I was like I would love bath salts from Samantha I mean I guess I would like bath salts from Samantha, but it does beg the question, and I know that your love language 
for expressing love for other people is maybe not what you want to receive. Like you may (laughs) want something different, but it does strike me that she doesn't long for a homemade gift from anyone. Like I don't I don't even know that she knows how to articulate that based on the life she's had. I also think that game is weird because it's sort of it sort of lulls you into or naturalizes that the cost of all of the, these things is perfectly fair and fine. Yes. Yes. Which is like that to me is the craziest part of this game. I think what's been so interesting about like going on this journey of like really fully putting ourselves in the American girl world is there is this fantasy that's projected by Pleasant Company and then by Mattel. And then there's this reality of like how much of this world is DIY. Like how much of this world is actually Samantha in a different way. Like in some ways, American Girl is exactly what Samantha seems to be, which is rich, posh stuff for middle class and upper middle class girls. And then we're constantly confronted with the reality of like, you know, uncle guards queerness of like the weird moment where like she's obsessing over whether her maybe aunt smells like violets like there's so much in this universe that is like unexpected all the time yes and just to return to uncle guard and cornelia's relationship i feel like we can both agree that this is a complete fantasy and i think because We'll get into this in the Babysitter's Club episode, but in rereading book one of that franchise, I was really struck that there's a moment when Christy's mom and her future stepdad, Watson, sit them down and say, like, we just want to let you know we're thinking about getting engaged, which is like, this is not an appropriate announcement. You either tell me you're engaged or, like, don't tell (laughs) me anything. I don't want to know that you're, like, in process on something. Whereas (laughs) these two have, like, completely not done that, and he presents her with a diamond ring on Christmas morning, which... And they're like, oh, yeah, like, and Grand Mary's like, how wonderful. When will you get married? And they both say March simultaneously, which signals that they've discussed this previously. And I'm like, what else happened in that offstage conversation? <laughs> Was Cornelia like, look, guard, I know you have something going on with your car. Like, you're doing weird Teddy Roosevelt cosplay with that mustache. Like, I don't know what the heck you even do for a job. Like, what you even do, you even belong to like a natural history society? Like, do you have any gentlemanly pursuits that you're using to like fill your time? And Cornelia's like, anyway, I'm on about five committees. I'm trying to save the world. Like, I'm all about hygiene and calisthenics and this and that and suffrage and labor rights. And she's like, look, I'll wear your ring. I will legally be married to you. I will enjoy your money. But that's where it ends for me. And Guard's like, thank God. So page 35, I marked it up extensively because it's the conversation where they're talking about like one of the things they have in common, which is loving travel. Yep. And so they talk about like airplanes and other possibilities. Uncle Guard laughed. By Jupiter, any sort of travel is fine with me. Let them put me in a hot air balloon or in a rickshaw or on an elephant. I'd even let them shoot me out of a cannon. And I was like, that's such an unnecessary comment. Um, yes. Which is such a bizarre non sequitur. Like, I think Guard is hanging out with, like, a very different crowd than Grand Mary's Mount Bedford Club. Like, I think he's hanging out at the circus. Also, to all the listeners who've invoked the 1904 World's Fair, we will talk about that at some point. There yes. just hasn't been a connection. But I feel like Guard being, like, oh, yeah, I would get shot out of a cannon. 
those are words said by a man who's done it already. Yes. My vision <laughs> of him in reading that was like, okay, he's volunteering that he's willing to be shot out of a cannon for literally no reason. And by starting that phrase with by Jupiter, to me, that is a very Teddy Roosevelt expression. Like yes. short of bully, like that's the sort of like hip turn of phrase that, you know, you could expect of a young Teddy Roosevelt. And I just keep thinking about this photo of Teddy Roosevelt as a younger man where he has, like, insane sideburns and he doesn't yes. even have his mustache. But he's topless and he's, like, he's basically, like, I'm training to box or be a wrestler. And I just have this vision of Guard being in, like, a weird secret rich boy fight club where he's, like, yeah, you could shoot me out of a cannon. You could, like, punch me in the face. And Grammarie's, like, what? Sorry, huh? <laughs> What debilitating disease did Uncle Guard have between 1888 and 1895 that made him bedridden and then inspired his love of seashells? What is it for him? I don't know. But it's like, is he doing like low-key self-taught taxidermy in his room? Also like yes. Teddy Roosevelt? And you can just see him with the the flight conversation being like, and I will obviously be seeking out the Wright brothers and I will be the first person on a manned flight you know, kind of, again, for no reason. It's like, okay, we get it. You like technology. Chill. I will say that reminded me of one of my favorite, favorite, favorite clips of audio of all time, which is the Memory Palace episode on Harriet Quimby, who mm -hmm. is one of the first women aviators. And I just highly recommend that. It's about this woman who watches an airplane, probably being flown by guard, to be honest with you. Probably. And it like, it basically inspires her to say, like, I want to do that. And she becomes the first woman to fly across Mexico City. And I won't give away the ending of her life, but it's super sad. Um, but anyway, listen to that. It's very good. Also, that engagement scene reminds me of, again, Alice Roosevelt, who I do think is the basis for a lot of what's happening here. And yes. I would say in books one and two that a lot of her childhood is mapped onto Samantha, which fits. But in this book, I actually think... She's starting to emerge as like a Cornelia cipher because Cornelia accepts the diamond ring and we're like, I'm thinking to myself, OK, well, at least she's getting a diamond ring out of this if she's into that kind of thing. That wouldn't really do it for me. But I'm thinking about when Alice Roosevelt, Alice Roosevelt gets married. She's 21. It's three years after her coming out. She's afraid she's going to be an old maid. So she pursues this man who becomes eventually Speaker of the House who is a couple years her her senior. She definitely has daddy issues. And looking back in her memoir, which again, I am in hot pursuit. If anyone can give me a lead on how I can get a copy of her memoir that will not make me have to sell my possessions, please get at me. But she's basically like, all I want to say about my marriage is that I enjoyed the wedding gifts that I received, period. <laughs> Just saying. But how Samantha is that? It is. I was like, wow, this is this all fits. She also, I already told you this off air, but at one point she goes to Newport to hang out and party at the mansions because she was friends with the Vanderbilts. And Teddy was like, I do not like this, like conspicuous consumption culture. Please stay out of it. And she's like, sorry, I love to party too much. Bye. <laughs> and she goes to Newport and her friend has a car, which is sort of controversial at the time. And she's like, hey, let's just get in the car and drive to Boston. So they do. And it gets covered in the newspaper. Where it's like two women driving alone. Like, this is wrong. This is too insane. This is dangerous. Then she buys her own red convertible and like hops around D.C. Anyway, she's my hero, but also scares me more to follow. We would we would not. And you know this. We would not have been early adopters of cars. And you know that. 
Like, Mary, you drove a Saturn. How dare you? What are you trying to say about my Saturn? Like, oh, my God. Allison, I can't believe the hits I'm taking this episode. How You can say whatever you want about me, <laughs> but for you to besmirch the memory and legacy of Steffi the Saturn is a bridge too far. I literally just sat down on this weekend like, I miss her. I did cry when she died. Yes, I do. Allison, car- <laughs> how dare you? The car was like a lawnmower. With, it like, was. Seats. Did I lean forward driving up big heels because I thought it would help? Yes. yes. But you know what? I had an emotional attachment to that car. Not like <laughs> uncle guard level attachment but it was like we went on some adventures together like we had some good times i feel like i would have been an early adopter of automobiles i i would never never participate in early aviation like you couldn't pay me anything you would have been very early in bicycle culture because you love pants (laughs) i do love pants you don't have the eyesight for early car culture. That's rough. Optical can I science have, was Can better. I have goggles, though? Yes, but they're not going to help. Like, What do you mean? I think there's... <laughs> what if I could like wear my glasses and then I put my goggles on over it and I'm wearing pants just, in, just for safety? That's fine. I just see you as part of bicycle culture because you're actually into fitness. I don't know if I would consider myself into fitness, but thanks for like giving me that credit. I do respect that about you. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we would have been. You definitely are not part of car culture. No. Never in a million years. You would have been like the lone woman who insists on having a horse-drawn carriage drive you around town just to like stare at people, which reminds me very quick aside Anna brought me to a house museum of Mary Baker Eddy's house outside of Boston, which you have to go to by appointment only, which was insane. And the woman who gave us the tour is a practicing Christian scientist and said to us totally seriously, this is the carriage that Mary Baker Eddy had people drive her around in once a day in the afternoon just to let people in Boston know that she was still alive when she was very old. She was like, just in case you heard the rumors, I'm dead. Hi, I'm still here. And they were like, there were cars. She didn't participate in car culture. Yeah, that would be you. You would be like, and I'll I will take my carriage ride now. Thank you. Yeah, I would. I would. I can't say that I wouldn't. I mean, I don't think I would have been brave enough to be part of early bicycle culture. I will tell you, this is a true story. I worked at a historic museum. The first day that I saw someone in costume out on a penny farthing, I think I literally said like, oh, my word, like it truly (laughs) it truly shocked me. And then, like, yeah. a woman came by on it, and I was like, It was too no. much for you. Like, really? You were like, what's really... next? A vote? <laughs> I know. It really shook me to my core. And I wasn't even I wasn't even doing first person. That was just my actual reaction. That feels very you and very believable. And I accept that that likely happened. But... I know it's not relatable, but that... I mean, you know how I felt when Edith put on pants on Downton, and I won't. See, that's another huge divide in our friendship, because to me, that was like the crowning moment of Downton Abbey as a show. It was like, Sybil puts no. on pants, and I'm like, Sybil is a queen. Oh, sorry, Sybil. Yes, yeah, so yeah. you, you for, like blocked out her name, whereas you simultaneously messaged me and were like, that was the worst thing I've ever seen. <laughs> like, that was such a letdown to you, where I was like, I feel seen, like, thank you. Where's the pants? I I did not like that scene understatement (laughs) how dare these women wear pants and ride a bike and want to ride a car and wow i just feel like for someone who's allegedly so pro-woman like for you to attack steffi the saturn this way is just like very upsetting i'm sorry 
guard is to his car, which is probably named like Steven or something, as you are to Steffi. I, I feel it. like guard calls his car TD, which is what <laughs> yes. Teddy Roosevelt's family called him. Yes, he does. He was like, yes, it's he not, does. he's like, I'm an insider, so I'm not going to call it Teddy because we all know like his family calls him TD. So thank you. I love that. Yeah. I will just say, I have so much love for the people who leave reviews as adults and the occasional like children. And I will just share a few because I cherish them very much. I, I just like, I, I love these two sentences by Cecilia. I can't say I didn't enjoy it, but I can't say I did probably in between like Cecilia, like, do you like put that on Mount Rushmore? Um, Kelsey proposes a a different title for this book. The one where they have to imbue coveting of dolls to the next level. Oh my god. Lainey tells us, the lady was nice but I don't feel anything was learned. No spirit of giving. Just a kid whining. Only good for American girl fans. Which I feel like is like a weird, like, yes? Yeah, like, it's book three in a series so presumably you're a fan if you got here. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I also just enjoyed Amara, who's like, I'm going to make a list of my top six things from this book. Handmade Snowflakes, Nutcracker, Dolls, Papier-Mâché, Book of Chocolates, Her Red Dress, or sorry, Box of Chocolates. And I was like, what more do you need? Honestly, I don't even know. I feel like as a political act, I should start accepting or giving jelly beans as a gift to just like reclaim that history. I love jelly beans. I love jelly beans, but I'm just saying, like, I don't like that I have to live with this association with Ronald Reagan every time I eat a jelly bean. I know. I know. I'm I don't with know you. what to do with that. I mean, also, I have a kind of conspiracy theory about the way that this has all been staged, and of course, Val's at the center of it. So just like hear me out briefly. What if Val the whole time is like, and I'm gonna take four through six because and I'm gonna make you split up one, two, and three between two authors. So I'm going to essentially set them up to fail. Like, in other words, they can't have a unified voice of the characters. Like, it's going to be, it's going to feel really all over the place. Then I'm going to come in and, like, dunk on them both because I've, like, been in these story meetings with Pleasant. So I know what the overall arc is. Going to give them very limited information. Then I'm going to come in and take the whole thing home. Like, I feel like things are about to go up a notch if our (laughs) next book is Val. They are definitely about to go up. I feel like Elsa is about to drop out. Like, for whatever reason, this author was like, Christmas is Elsa's time to be heard and nonetheless ignored. Like, when Elsa said whatever, honestly, I burst out laughing. Like, these books, I think it's really hard to explain. Like, obviously, times are stressful right now. I really am so grateful for these books because they are giving me laughter that I did not expect and also like fighting against the holiday hoopla I was like don't let them normalize your stress Elsa I love it so much when she basically is like what's this crap when she finds like (laughs) Samantha's snowman that Samantha has like in protest put out her own self-made decorations it she was like this is gonna catch all this dust I was like you're giving me life right now because her absolute refusal to engage Samantha as a child it, there's yeah. just something about it that's so funny to me and it's it takes me back to like I won't name who this person is but I had a relative who at the time had young children 
And her kids would do these elaborate drawings and basically hand them to her and we're like, Mommy, look, I drew you. And she's like, oh, wow, how cute. And then the minute they left the room, she would throw it in the trash. And I'd be like, what are you doing? Like, don't you want to save this? And she was like, I get about a thousand of these. I don't, I can't take this on. It was like, but there's just something about that that makes me laugh. And that's what Elsa gave me. Also, Samantha being like, isn't Christmas amazing? Like, decorating is so fun to Jesse. And Jesse responding basically like, must be fun for you. Like, there's just something about Christmas where the servants are not having it. And I'm very here no. for it. No, and that's touched on a bit on the peak into the past, which is just like hyper focused on Christmas. And I think while other books in these series have done a better job maybe with this holiday this is like a really tightly focused book where it's like we are literally only going to talk about christmas in 1904 and like why they modeled themselves on english royalty who made a big deal about it um they note on the last page that servants like the hawkins and elsa would have had to work extra hard and it's like sometimes they got boxing day and uh sometimes they didn't yeah and also thank you for bringing a peek into the past i found this one to be very bad and the tone was way off base at times in ways that i think are not great for kids on the previous page um, i knew you're gonna read this oh my god quote in 1904 people didn't worry about their figures the way we do now in fact it was considered a sign of success to be plump so christmas dinner was an enormous feast with soup fish ham and a golden brown goose there are many different kinds of breads, cream vegetables, and all amounts of potatoes drenched in gravy. Yada, 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 rest of dinner. And it's like, I'm sorry, do we have to instill these young girl readers that it's nor- to normalize the notion that we all need to be dieting or be concerned about being slim? That actually, I almost wanted to throw my book across the room. I didn't do it because I believe this is Anna's copy, but I was not happy with this. No, and I think it's very much in line with the way they've all been written, which is like assuming a default rich perspective. Yeah, exactly. Like, honestly, one of the saddest scenes, really, that we've had so far in the Samantha books is, and gingerbread comes up almost every single book, whether it's cookie or like house form. Book one, when she tries to give the gesture of the cookie to Nellie and she's too afraid to eat it. That's super dark, actually. Yes. I mean, it's like there are people in this world, in her world, who have food insecurity. And also just to like suggest that no one had body issues then or or that, you know, being plump was a sign of prosperity. Like, first of all, that's a misread or like a gross oversimplification about body stuff in the Edwardian period. But secondly, it's like, okay, maybe somebody thought that in 1904, that's what your limited research suggests. But there are nine-year-old girls reading this book. What the hell are you doing? I'm sorry. That made me really not happy. That's where I feel like the, the segmentation and like the chopping up of this series really shows because literally the entire last book, Peek into the Past, there was such an emphasis on the swimming without water, the calisthenics, the gym class, it's like that's very obviously not true. Like they don't speak to each other. And I think once Val comes in, like that's about to change really hard. Val's about to drop a hammer. If I know Val at all and I have not read ahead, (laughs) I do not know what's coming. We are going to get a from nowhere because we haven't gotten it at all this series, like weird emotional depths. I think we're going to be forced to confront the ghosts of Samantha's parents past yeah. Um, I hope we at least get a, a reference to them. I would love to know a cause of death. Um, 
I know it was a, a drowning, maybe a boat accident. I don't know if I'm dreaming that from book one, but I think that's what we learned in the only mention of this or. Yes. Did we invent I mean, that? You're never going to get the full forensics from Val. We know that from Josefina, but I feel like. <sighs> Val's fingerprints you know, will be all over it. <laughs> thinking of the rendering of. You know, I feel like she planted the seed with this one where she was like, just start with the parents being dead. Yep. And then when she wrote Felicity and Josefina, respectively, Pleasant was like, what's with you and the dead parents? And she was like, <laughs> she's like, shh, not going to talk. She's like, one's going to be a near miss. Yeah. One's going to be a foregone conclusion and one's going to be a mystery. And Pleasant was like, isn't your mom? And she was like, nope, don't she's like, finish that talk about that. And then she's like, oh, so you think I just kill off the parents? That's all I'll do. I want to say that the last <laughs> line of book six is literally like peek into the future for no reason. And it's just about Nellie. And it's like, yes, Nellie grew up to get in a job as like a lady's companion on the finest luxury liner in human in existence to that point called titanic like she couldn't <laughs> yeah. wait to take the voyage and it's like ah! i did love- I was like i'm not afraid one of the other supplemental authors her name is sarah masters bucky like these author bios are so wild in the supplementals like like i said there's 18 pairs of prints on this series when sarah was 14 she got her first job working as a page or aide at her local library she loved books so she enjoyed everything about the job except having to be quiet oh my god and it's like these bios are wild like i think we need to start when we get asked to give presentations like we need to start spinning similar anecdotes and just using that yeah 100 percent. i'll i'll just you know we'll spin up whenever we need to spin up or spin out I'll take notes from like these author bios from some celebrity memoirs that never should have been made it to publication where people are like, yep, I had a, a romantic relationship with a ghost who haunts my house. <laughs> like that's yeah. the level of imagination people are bringing to their author bios these days. So it kind of makes me feel like the gauntlet's been thrown down for us. Like, I don't really know what we're going to do. I do think I will ask you to acknowledge Steffi the Saturn in your acknowledgments because, you know, she's earned it. But, you know, beyond that, I haven't really given it too much thought. When this episode comes out, you will have received my birthday gift to you. And that's all I'll say. Is it a Saturn? No. (laughs) Is it a skateboard? No, I can't say. Damn it. All right. I can't (laughs) wait. I need to know. We will all know when this episode drops, but it is it is certainly like it is not an element of mobility that you have asked for, um, Interesting. such as a Saturn. I'm um, considering, and this might be too extra, I'm not sure, but I'm considering buying myself a skateboard, having it shipped to my parents' house where I'll likely have dinner on my birthday, having it signing the card, love Dolly Parton, so no <laughs> one can say anything to me about like, you're too old for this or you can't have it. Because it's like, why would you ever ask me to reject a gift for my hero? I I would never ask you to do that. It's like kind of a Bart Simpson move, but I too love a Butterfinger, so I don't judge. Yeah, and they've changed the flavor, but I still enjoy it. So did they? Yeah, they did last year. I don't know. Oh, it's worth checking out. They're not sponsoring us, but I'm just saying, if they want to throw us some money, I'll I'll try them again. I'll try more. But I I would love that. Um, and if you want to sponsor us, like, where should people find us? So you can find me on Twitter at Mary Mahoney123. And if you want to, you know, commiserate with me as a former Saturn owner, if you want to, you know, just spitball about whatever, you can find me on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney. And Allison, what about you? 
You can find me at Allison Horrocks on Instagram and on Twitter, where I am increasingly uninteresting because of the pandemic. Um, and you can write to the show at American Girls Pod at Gmail. And you can find us on Instagram with the same and at a girls pod on Twitter. Very exciting. So we'll see you for our next episode when God only knows what kind of hell is going to break loose, what kind of chaos we'll be living in as Val reenters our lives. I think. Birthday. Woo. Can't wait. Can't wait. It's almost Leo season. Thank you. See you next episode. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>